Keep Left Pod. Uh, this week, I want to talk about something I find um, I find really fascinating, and I think it, it's um, stories like this are the kind of stories that helped pull me um, kind of out of this neoliberalism uh, mindset into a more uh, anti-capitalist worldview. Um, and I, I think one of the ways I'm going to be able to frame frame these stories uh, using this platform is kind of like let's examine some um, capitalist success stories, whether it's uh, uh, a large corporation or an individual. Let's look at that that person or corporation and break down how they got wealthy and whether or not we think that um, they did it in a moral uh, or or ethical way. And this story also um, ties into another thing I think I'm going to be talking about a lot on this podcast and it's um the you know u.s intervention in foreign governments and uh neocolonialism as a whole and uh how we've used how we've used some of these practices to um prop up capitalism at home uh by exploiting foreign countries um and so since this story seems to kind of have it all i kind of wanted to start here um because like I said, I, I think it's a fascinating story and it's the story of the United Fruit Company or as you may know them, uh, Chiquita Brands, like Chiquita Bananas. And I believe they also own um, A&W, the restaurant. Um, so anytime you eat a Chiquita Banana or drive through an A&W, I want you to think of this story. So in uh, 1901, the United Fruit Company became the the largest employer of Central America. They had all these um, plantations and and farms for, you know, various fruits, and uh, I believe they had some coffee farms as well. Um, and in 1930, they became the largest landowner in Guatemala. Um, and that's that's where I want to that's where I want to talk about mostly today is their um, their influence in Guatemala, um, and actually the the power that they wielded in these countries for in these Latin American countries for from being the the largest employer and the, the largest landowner is how the term um, banana Republic was coined because they they were essentially controlled by a fruit company so just to give a like a very brief history of Guatemala at the time the time that we're talking about here um, before this they had been through pretty much right-wing dictator after right-wing dictator after right-wing dictator that had just overthrown each other. Um, uh, workers' rights were were awful. Um, peasant, pop, peasant population was huge. Um, it was just um, constantly an uprising going on in that country, overthrowing, and they just, you know, um, one dictator... Um, promised free and fair elections and overthrew the, the previous dictator and the free and fair elections never came so they overthrew him and then finally they got their chance to elect a leader so in what what most would refer to as the first uh, true election uh, guatemala ever had they elected uh, president jose arvalo um, he adopted a new constitution based it on the united states constitution um, built you know, 5,000 schools, uh, made some great strides in healthcare, um, and things started to kind of uh, chill out there. Uh, pe- a lot of the peasants were still being exploited by the United Fruit Company, and um, 
you know, nobody really owned anything. The United Fruit Company owned all the land. Um, so there was some, there was a lot of work left to do at the end of his term. And um, in 1951, they elected uh, President Arbenz, and um, he continued to, to make progress. And um, he started to loosen up political freedoms a little bit, and people were allowed to think for themselves and start to organize. And um, the big thing he did that really shook up the United States and the uh, United Fruit Company um, was he redistributed a lot of land from large property owners to landless farmers. Uh, landless farmers was about 90% of the population at the time. Um, so the United States really looked at this um, as a red flag for uh, communism. Even though this guy wasn't really a communist, he was a he was a, at best a liberal that recognized that um, his country was being exploited by a foreign company, a foreign corporation, and that he wasn't they weren't getting anything for it. So he decided that um, a lot of this land that the United Fruit Company had. Um, they weren't using, I think they were using about 10 to 15% of uh, the land that they owned there. Um, they mainly just bought all that shit up to make sure that they had a monopoly. Um, anytime any farmer would, would you know, would um, think about going down there and starting a banana company, it, it was really, really fucking hard to find the land because the United Fruit Company owned everything. Um, so anyway, this guy just recognized that. Um, he recognized that there was a lot of unused land and he had a lot of people suffering. Um, so he redistributed some of that land, bought it back, forced to buy back from the United Fruit Company. And um, that, that, um, that raised some alarms here. Um, it's, it's, not, um, it's also not a coincidence that the head of the CIA at the time had shares in the United Fruit Company and that the United Fruit Company was very closely tied to the Eisenhower administration. So anything that hurt their pocket, the United States was going to take care of. And this was just, I mean, it was during, um, you know, the height of, of uh, communism scare, you know. Uh, we're talking early 1950s here, so that was, that was the, the flavor at the time. It, um, so a lot of times we use this, these, anytime anybody tried to make any challenge to our, um, uh, our system, that uh, it was squashed. So enter the CIA, which is just, you know, worth mentioning, and we'll probably do an episode about this as well, is at this point the, the CIA is fresh off their success in uh, Iran, which was their first, um, first coup abroad um, to overthrow a democratically elected leader and replace them with, with someone that was uh, closer to our interests. They had just had success in Iran with this, so it was uh, there was kind of a playbook now, and they realized how easy it was to take over some of these, these poorer countries without actually ever raising a, uh, much of a finger militarily. Um, so they knew what to do, and um, the United Fruit Company felt, uh, felt threatened. They felt like... Um, one of the things they were upset about was they didn't feel like they got enough money for the land that they uh, that the Guatemalans forced them into the Bible. I mean, they weren't using the land, but they still wanted it, like I said, for the monopoly. And um, <clears throat> uh, they were upset because they they didn't they wanted fair market value for the land, and the Guatemalans said, "No, you you'll get what uh, you valued the land at at tax time." So 
because they had undervalued their holdings to such a crazy extent to get so they didn't have to pay this country any fucking taxes, um, their land wasn't really worth all that much to them. So they kind of fucked themselves. Um, so United Fruit started this um, huge anti-communist propaganda effort against Guatemala and the United States. Um, and that was, you know, like I said, it was very popular at the time. It was already in the news. It was pretty easy to just, you know, say, hey, the communists are here. They're this close. Um, and it's funny, you know, if you read some of the old or listen to some of the old ads or um, some of this propaganda, it always talks about how, like, especially with Guatemala, because it was closer to us than you know, it was in our hemisphere, you know. Um, it always talks about, like, oh, if we let this country get away with this, their neighbors are going to do the same thing. It's just like, well, and then it'll just, before you know it, it'll spread to the United States. And it's just like, well, then you're kind of fucking accepting that it works. Because why the fuck, if you were, a, you know, a small country in Central America, uh, why would, if your neighbor adopted a program that was as bad as the United States says it is, why the fuck would you adopt it too? It's, it's almost like they're admitting that like, yeah, if these countries find out how good this system is for them, we'll, you know, we'll never see the end of it. Um, but I just, I just wanted to point that out because I, I think it's one of the funnier things I've noticed about this anti-communist propaganda. Um, so at, the, at this point, um, you know, Eisenhower knows he, we need to do something, um, but he didn't really want to intervene directly in Guatemala. Like I said, um, you really didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to uh, invade a Western Hemisphere ally, you know, uh, that was a little close to home. Um, and he had re he had vowed to um, reduce Cold War spending. Um, that was you know kind of what he ran on was he thought that was getting out of control and he wanted to kind of scale it back. Um, so he enlisted the CIA because like I said they had just figured out how cheap you could throw a, overthrow a government in Iran. Um, so he he um, I believe they found a, I can't remember the guy's name they found a, um, a marine and sent him down and he was in charge of uh, what's known now. Um, as the CIA um, Operation PB Success, and this is stuff is from you know from what we're going to talk about here. This is all declassified stuff. You can go um, you can go check out any of it now. I think uh, the Guatemalan coup, the information behind that was declassified in like 2013. So all this information is out there now, and it's just something we don't you know. It's like what you missed in history class, you know. Of course, I wasn't taking history class in 2013, but something tells me that they're not teaching kids this in school right now as part of a. Uh, you know, as part of our history or, you know, Central American history. Um, so anyway, 1952, two years after the election, um, they, they sent these guys down there, um, this Marine down there to Guatemala and began recruiting an opposition force, um, just trying to get some, some guys and, and train them. And it was very, um, it was very informal training. I mean, they pretty much just taught them how to hold a gun, and there wasn't very many of them. I think there was like 25 guys in the original force. Um, and they chose a, uh, a pretty disgruntled anti-Arbenz, uh, President Arbenz uh, officer um, from the military named Carlos Castillo Armas to lead the operation. Um, and most of these people, most of these, these rebels down there that they were recruiting didn't even know who the fuck this guy was. In fact, when they met him, a lot of them were, I think he was a pretty, pretty tiny, scrawny guy. And I think a lot of them were like, what the fuck? Like, we're overthrowing the government for this guy. Like, who is this clown, you know? So obviously he was just, you know, he was just a puppet. He was just who we chose to, hey, you're the guy now. Um, he was going to play his part. And um, 
lead this force. So uh, like the first time they <clears throat> they invaded, uh, like I said, there was a pretty small force and they were fought off almost immediately. Um, so they knew they had to, had to get a bigger force and he had to keep, he had to go back and recruit some people. And he didn't even really do that. This guy, it sounds like literally just kind of sat around and waited for the CIA to say, okay, now you now go. Um, so the CIA knew they needed to, you know, recruit some more men and really ramp up the propaganda. So they, they, um, took over a lot of the radio stations and, um, uh, and, you know, put out magazines, got in the newspapers, um, and just started filling, uh, Guatemala with, um, with propaganda against the president and, and also started publishing things, um, that didn't really happen about like, a, you know, the rebel force attacking here and they've taken this part of the country. And most of the country at that point thought they were being, oh, they were in the process of being overthrown um, because they were just filled with propaganda all the time. And they thought it was much worse than it was. Even the president like didn't know what to, you know, what to really think most of his, um, his communications outside of, uh, outside of where he was, was, were cut off. He was just kind of, you know, he was as knowledgeable about this as the average person on the street was. Um, so they really ramped up those efforts and, um, you know, I think they, they gathered maybe like 400 people to join at that point. I think people really thought like, Oh shit, like which side of this do I want to end up on? You know? Um, so they got some guys from within the military to help them. Um, and, uh, and then they invaded again. I think they they had an invasion force of uh, over 400 people the next time. And um, they also put giant speakers on top of the U.S. Embassy and um, played war sounds, gunfire and bombs going off. And then we flew a couple of bombers over, um, over the president's home um, and flew them around the cities and just made it seem like there was war going on, you know, blasting these... <laughs> this. Uh, this shit from the speakers on top of the embassy made the whole city, uh, I mean, evacuate. They thought, like, fuck, you know, we're in the middle of a war zone here. And there was literally nothing going on. There was 400 guys just kind of walking through the streets. Um, so the president was essentially tricked into coming out and stepping down. And uh, a few days later, uh, President Castillo Armas was uh, sworn in, and he immediately, you know, took fucking dictator powers uh, banned opposition parties, imprisoned and, and tortured uh, political opponents, reversed all the social and land reforms that the previous president had accomplished. Um, there were seven labor organizers uh, that were uh, captured and killed um, following him being sworn in, um, people that were seen as being you know, closely tied to the Communist Party that, that the previous president had not been a part of but had allowed to, because he, you know, allowed political opposition, there had been a small, I think it was like 4,000 members throughout the entire country, Communist Party there. And because we were kind of trying to paint them as the bad guys, uh, we rounded up seven of them and killed them. Uh, well, he, this dictator did that we put in power. I say we, but technically we just did it through him. Um, so, and this was viewed, um, you know, the fallout from this and the aftermath from this was viewed in the rest of the world pretty poorly we didn't we didn't look great here um there was kind of it was kind of hard beginning to be hard to paint all these all our you know uh, our hands um 
getting dirty all the time. Kind of hard to paint that in a good light. Um, and I think the rest of the world started to notice. And, and the CIA launched uh, another operation where they sent some people down to try to find ties between um, between Guatemala and Soviet Russia. Um, and so they, you know, seized some buildings and searched some records and, and ultimately came up with nothing. Um, nothing of substance ever came out of it. But we were we were coming down really hard on the communists there, the small you know, group of communists that were there because we really, really needed to paint them in the worst light we could. So anyway, because, you know, because the Guatemalan people had started to experience um, in the last few years uh, some semblance of a humane existence, um, when they saw the past coming back, um, uh, they were not going to have it. So uh, Guatemala went through 40 years of civil war after this. Um, as you know, leftist organizations and guerrillas rose up and, and fought a series of you know several U.S.-backed authoritarian regimes. Um, some of which uh, this could be an entire other episode. Some of which were responsible for uh, the uh, genocide of the Mayan people, referred to as the Guatemalan genocide or the Silent Holocaust. Um, and this was just a like a massacre of of Mayan civilizations that were um, that were viewed. I mean, they were just they were viewed as Mayans were viewed as subhuman. They were peasants, um, and because of that, uh, a lot of these leftist guerrilla organizations um, uh, sympathized with them and helped them when they could. So they were viewed as siding with the opposition to the right wing Guatemalan military. Um, so they were just uh, rounded up and executed, mostly unarmed civilians. Um, it's a really fucking tragic, tragic thing that I, um, that, uh, you know, the United States had a big hand in. We can't deny that, that um, the rise of these, these horrible dictators in some of these countries um, were, were, it was our fault. And um, we, we allowed it to happen to protect um, domestic interests in this country because um, our our political system is so tied to our uh, to our hugest corporations, and I think this is, like I said, this is just one of those examples of just how um, how none of these, you know, nobody becomes that big ethically. Um, so, like I said, I think this is um, the story of the United Fruit Company, and man, that was just the fucking high notes. Um, There's a lot more to this story, and. Um, uh, some of the things that the United Fruit Company actually did a outside of the uh, spectrum of CIA, they were doing kind of their own stuff down there too, um, involved with some paramilitary groups that were accused of of rounding people up and killing them that were that were viewed as opposition. Um, the problem with a lot of those stories, though, is that um, uh, finding stuff that hasn't been completely propagandized about those corporations is actually harder than the CIA because uh, they're finding stuff about the CIA because the CIA has to release stuff. Um, they have to eventually declassify things. So we, you know, we have some hard facts here to go on on what the CIA's involvement was down there. And I think that was enough for me to assume that most of what I've read about what the United Fruit Company was up to at the same time was probably true. Um, so anytime you... Uh, you eat a Chiquita banana or drive through an A&W, um, maybe think about what, what um, allowed that
corporation to become just as giant and successful as it is today and as it survives today. Um, and with that, I think we'll wrap this up. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Stack banana till the morning come. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and we want go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and we want go home. Live six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Banana!